how are you guys feeling here this afternoon, this evening? Good? You sure? You really sure? The other half, the other half that didn't, you might have stayed up to watch the opening, the closing ceremonies for the Olympics, didn't you? No, no, yeah. That's what I figured. Nobody really cares about the Winter Olympics. Let's just be honest. But I do love the Olympics. I do. I love other sports in general. But the Winter Olympics closed at like 3 o'clock in the morning, I think, today, officially, because of South Korea time. But, uh, but there was, it, was a, it was actually a great Winter Olympics this year. Uh, any favorites? Anybody that watched it? Were there any favorites? Any, any highlight moments? Curly, right? The U.S. men got the gold, baby, at the most boring sport on the planet. Okay, okay. Well, first, did you guys hear about the Russian athlete, the male Russian athlete that got caught for doping? That was a curler. You want to talk about the most useless sport to be doping for? Curling, it doesn't make any sense. You don't need any extra juice. All right, okay, what else? Other highlights? Okay, the women, yeah, did you guys get to see that? The women's cross-country relay, I think we never won a gold in that, right? That's what it was. But it was like this, like, photo finish. She was trucking, baby, and pushed through and got the gold. It was awesome. Okay, these three over here. Sean White closing it out with another gold, baby. Okay, what else? Gabe? Carly? The women's half pie, right? We had some youngsters. We had, we had uh, oh, yeah, Chloe, that's, that's her name. Chloe Kim. Yeah, she killed it. She killed it. We had a couple 17-year-olds that were killing it in the back. Okay, you, ju- you jumped the gun. That's, that was mine. That was what I was going to say. Oh, here, this is the Olympics picture. Yeah, the, the women's hockey was incredible. I'm going to talk about that in just a second. Anybody else? Any other highlights? Did anybody see Nathan Chen's last performance? I don't really like figure skating, but, but he was incredible in his last performance. It's just a shame he stunk the one before it. Uh, yeah, I, I also realized I kind of want to petition to, like, have some of the, the Summer Olympic Games, like, moved to the wintertime. That way there's more sports to watch. Because it's like triple the amount of sports in summer games versus the winter games. But I, I did want to talk about the U.S. women's hockey team. We did get the gold this year. That was awesome. Okay. Uh, I looked up some stuff about this. The, these two teams have faced off for the gold five times in the Olympics. Okay. That's pretty amazing. And this is the first gold medal in the women's hockey in 20 years. 20 years. Uh, and it was awesome. It ended in, like, the, the best dramatic fa- – like, every way you hope a hockey game would end in, in overtime and then with the shootout and then up by one goal. I mean, it was, it was awesome. The pageantry was incredible, especially after losing to Canada uh, previously. But, uh, but I stumbled upon an article about the women's hockey team, the hockey finals, actually. It was called Best Friends and Bitter Rivals. And it was interesting. I was reading about it, and I was looking at it, that part of what made this game so intense – was that a lo- most of the players for both teams played together in college. Like, they all know each other. So it was weird. So that's part of what made the, the drama so intense in the game, was that a lot of them really knew each other. So it made the competition that much more intense uh, as they were doing the finals together. And, and as I was reading it, it made me think of other rivalries in sports and relationships that different athletes and teams have with each other. And in history... There have been some incredible athletes and incredible teams. But what's interesting is that without their counterparts, we may not remember them the way that we do. So I'm going to bring up a couple. If you're not a sports fan, I'm sorry. I did run several of these examples by my wife to see if she could connect with it. She did. 
She doesn't like sports all that much, but so this should be at least universal for most of you. All right? So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to show you a picture of one, and you tell me what their counterpart is, okay? We'll do the first example here, okay? When you think Joe Frazier, who do you think of? Of course, right? You think of Muhammad Ali, one of the greatest boxing rivalries of all time, all right? When you think of the Los Angeles Lakers, who do you think of? The Celtics, right? That's dynasty, okay? When you think of UCLA, who do you think of? USC, obviously, okay? When you think of Serena Williams, you think of Venus Williams, yes, her sister. They've been playing together for a really, really long time. All right, uh, what about when you think of the Red Sox, you think of the Yankees, absolutely. Okay, I got one for the football fans. Okay, when you think, oh, nope, it skipped one. Hold on, let me back it up. Did I skip over it? Oh, I missed it. Somewhere, okay. When you think of Real Madrid, who do you think of? Barcelona, exactly. El Clasico, right? They played stateside for the first time this year. Okay, and then when you think of Army, who do you think of? Navy, absolutely. One of the oldest rivalries in in American sports, for sure. Now, these teams and these athletes are amazing on their own. But without their counterpart, we wouldn't have the stories. They might not have been as good as we think they are. You know, I don't know if you saw the 30 for 30 documentary about uh, Holyfield chasing Tyson or something like that. But he was talking about, like, you know, that everybody remembers the the Tyson-Holyfield fights. Well, maybe Tyson would have been quite the boxer we remember if he hadn't fought Holyfield. And what's what's really cool about this when you really think about it is that these, these teams, these athletes, challenge each other to be better. These athletes would always push a little bit harder when they would face each other. Something special happens when these two get together, right? How many of you guys are USC fans here? Only a few. Yeah, see, that's usually the thing. Southern California doesn't really have good fans. I'm just going to go ahead and throw that out there. But, uh, but if you guys are real USC fans, then you remember 2005 when SC was getting ready to go to the national championship game. All roads pointed to the finals. It all looked good. And UCLA was like 4-10 was like and 10 or something. They were awful that year. But in that game, UCLA showed up, upset USC, knocked them out of the championship, and then my Florida Gators got to go to the national championship and win it all. So thank you, UCLA. I will remember that one forever. But I was looking up, there's a study from NYU that came out in 2014 where the researchers spent six years evaluating runners. And what he ended up finding out was that runners did better when, they, when someone that they felt competitive with was in the race with them. It had nothing to do with their talent. It had nothing to do with their training. The simple fact that they knew the person in the race, they, they kind of had something. They, they had something inside of them that said, okay, I, I got to do better than them, pushed them psychologically to a place where they pushed harder. There have been lots of other studies of this as well, especially when it comes to working out. Having a partner in almost every area of life pushes you to improve. In working out, partners help us to lift more weight, run faster, bike longer, and stay motivated. But you know, the reality of this is that God has been telling us this forever. Forever. In Proverbs 27, 17, a scripture I'm sure many of us are very, very familiar with. 
says, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. The point of this passage that, that Solomon is trying to get out to us here is that we were made to push each other. We were made to help each other to be sharp, to be stronger, to be more spiritual, more righteous. I am better with you than without you. And without each other, we get dull. We get lame. We get a lot less spiritual. You know, as we're, as we're wrapping up our move series, we've only got two more sermons, including today. You know, we've been talking about keeping in step with the Spirit. Today, we're going to talk about the importance of having great discipling relationships. Great partnerships in the faith. And working together to help each other to keep in step with the Spirit. And the goal today is, I'm not, I'm not really going to go into a lot of practicals and tell you how your relationships should be. Really, what I want to talk about today is the heart of it. What, what does God really want from this? Amen? The title of our sermon today, for those of you guys taking notes, is We Move. Let's say a word of prayer. Father, I just want to thank you so much for the opportunity to be here together. To, uh, to sit at your feet, to, to be able to keep in step with the Spirit, God, and that you, you give us such amazing things in your kingdom to be able to have the relationships that we do to help us to be the men and women that you desire for us to be. I really pray that you would open up our hearts and our ears today. God, help us to be receiving, uh, to receive your word eagerly. And I pray that you really speak powerfully through me. In your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so point number one of We Move is no solos. If we're going to walk in the Spirit, we need to get it in our hearts and into our heads that you cannot do this alone. Turn your Bibles with me over to 1 Kings chapter 19. Man, this thing is sensitive. There we go. 1 Kings 19, we're going to be in this story for the rest of our time together. Now, I want to explain kind of what's happening here. We're going to be reading about our buddy Elijah the prophet. And he's just coming off of this massively huge victory. Right? Elijah, Elijah was a bad dude, man. He was incredibly faithful. He stormed into King Ahab's place, and he was like, look, you guys have been unfaithful. I'm going to deal with all these false prophets. And what was going on is there was Baal worship that had been happening. So he busts through the door with King Ahab. He called, uh, challenges him. I think there's this whole, like, troubler of Israel conversation that happens. And, uh, and he tells him, he says, look, this is wrong. This is disrespectful to God. We've got to deal with this. And there's this whole face-off with one man, the prophet Elijah, versus 300 false prophets. If you've never read this story before, you don't know what you're missing. Go read it. Have it in your quiet times, okay? But, uh, but the story ends, so like, there's this competition. We say, okay, if your God's real, we're going to have us a little, a little sacrifice competition and see who shows up. And so he puts them to the test. He has them build an altar, and he has them dance around. He starts making fun of them. It's hilarious. He's like, surely your God's sleeping. That's why, that's why he can't hear you. Shout louder. And then Elijah has this faithful thing where he sets up his altar, and he gets this guy to pour water all over it. Pour water over everything until it's swimming. And then he says, okay, God, let's show him what you do. Says a prayer, and the fire just eats up everything. It's an incredible story. Kills the prophets. It's like, wow, I can't believe this just happened. Then the very next chapter, 
in chapter 19, he ran into a problem. Queen Jezebel heard about what Elijah did and was not happy about it. So she's like, you know what? Far be from me, I'm going to kill this dude. I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure this dude doesn't live. And after this incredibly faithful man stands up to 300 false prophets and a king, all of a sudden he runs with his tail between his legs. It makes no sense. Absolutely no sense. How did he go from incredibly faithful to a coward just like that? There was a problem. He was alone. Let's pick up in verse 19, because what ends up, or in verse 9, because what ends up happening here is he goes and runs. Uh, God tries to attend to him, sends an angel to him to try to comfort him, and he's in bad shape. He's emotional. He doesn't want to live anymore. He's like, this isn't even worth it. I don't even want to stay around here anymore. And we're going to pick up in verse 9. It says, And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. And we'll stop there. So let's think about Elijah's state of mind right now. Okay, this guy that was boldly standing up to 300 false prophets, now he's having kind of an argument with God of sorts, saying, I don't want to live. I'm the only one around. I'm the only one that still wants to be faithful. Nobody's here to help me. And life is just falling apart around him. Do you ever just feel just beat up and alone? Do you ever just feel like nothing in the world is going right? Nobody in my life really understands what's happening to me right now. And I just feel like that's it. I want to phone it in. It's over. I'm done. I'm calling it quits. You may not be like him asking to die and and end your life, but you may be wanting to stay in the fetal position in bed for the rest of the day. You know what I'm talking about? Like adulting is hard. Let's just be honest. And sometimes you just don't want to leave your bed. It's just kind of this imaginary place that if you stay there, then everything's okay. You know, in high school, I went through, I went through a time of life that was pretty tough. Where when I first became a disciple, there, was 12, there were 12 disciples at my school. It was pretty awesome. It was this incredible experience. Things were going great. My freshman year was, was balling. I, I had so much fun. There were three guys on the wrestling team with me. We had, we had such a great time. Then by the time I was a junior in high school, there was nobody. It was me, and I was the only disciple in my entire teen ministry. But not only that, we'd gone through some pretty serious turnover in our teen ministry as well. And we had, a, we had a new team leader about every three months for a little while. Like, like imagine like a Scott Sweeney type of guy every three months. And... I just, I didn't really know quite how to process all that. I was already struggling with all of my teenager stuff, all of my emotions, and how do I deal with high school. But then I felt like, nobody's here. I don't have anybody. You know, and every new guy that came in, good-hearted, tried to, tried to spend time with me and, and, and connect with me and stuff. And I finally just got to this place. I was like, you know what, man? I think I, think I actually verbally told one of the guys, I said, you know what, man? This isn't really going to work. You're going to be gone in a couple months. It's no use for us really getting together. 
And I had completely shut myself off to people. I remember even having a conversation with my dad. I said, look, I'm going to go to church, but I don't want to have anything to do with the teen ministry anymore. I don't want to be around. We had, we had teens that were getting in trouble and saying that I was doing stuff at school that I wasn't doing. I, I, was, I was struggling. I felt a little bit like Elijah. Like, look, the whole world is crashing down around me. There's nobody left, God. Here I am trying to please you, trying to do what's right, and you won't do anything to help me out. But the truth of the matter is, in my situation and in Elijah's situation, this just wasn't reality. In my situation, I was so caught up in my own head. I was, I was, having my, I was, I was really great at throwing my own pity parties. I, I'm really good at it. And I didn't even realize there was this guy, there was this brother named um, Elliot, who's in our college ministry, just a guy that, for some reason, kind of thought I was cool and wanted to hang out with me. He would voluntarily come over, spend time with me, take me to concerts. We'd go see movies together. He spent a lot of time with me. So while I'm in the corner having my pity party thinking, nobody loves me and I'm all by myself, I was completely ignoring the fact that I had this incredible guy that nobody ever asked to hang out with me that was trying to invest in me just because he wanted to. But in my own little world, I was alone. I just had to figure it out. And gut it out until God decided to take me. And the truth of the matter is Elijah was in a very similar place too. In chapter 18, it actually says that Elijah went and met Obadiah, which there's a book of the Bible named after Obadiah. He was a prophet. It said, it said that God even saw him as a righteous man. He hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets from all these false prophets and stuff because he was trying to be righteous. But here's Elijah going, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left and nobody... Blah, blah, blah. You just hung out with one. Like one chapter earlier. Did you not read your own story? But the truth of the matter is, this is a, this is a powerful story for all of us because it doesn't matter how faithful you are on your own. Eventually, life is going to hit you in the mouth. And when it hit him, he got really weird and self-focused. You know what happens when you try to fly solo? I came up with an acronym, okay? Solo, S-O-L-O. You become a sad, outcast loner on the outside. That's what happens when you fly solo, spiritually. In Ecclesiastes 4, God, Solomon elaborates on this idea a little bit. He says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. And if either of them falls, the other, they can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. God is saying here, look, if you're going to try to do this on your own, it's going to be a rough road for you. Because anybody that has tried to be righteous for more than five minutes knows you're going to fall and fall and fall. You're going to fall on your head. You're going to fall on your knees. You're going to fall a lot. You better have somebody there to help you up. And if you don't, it's going to be a miserable experience trying to live life to the full. And the truth of this as well is God did a lot of stuff to try to help Elijah in this moment. I mean, he sent an angel to him to go talk to him. Like, like the angel like, gave him like a holy blanket and stuff and then woke him up with food and 
had this whole experience and stuff. And then he said, okay, hey, I want, I'm going to go and do something cool for you. And he said, go, go stand on this cliff. And he sent an earthquake. He sent uh, a fierce wind. And then he sent a whisper of the Spirit to try to encourage him to show him, look, I'm still with you. And then in verse 14, guess what Elijah says again? I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put... He says the exact same thing. This dude was jacked up in his head. God does miracles to try to encourage him to show him that he's not alone. And he still is just, I'm just alone. And nobody loves me. He couldn't get out of his own head. And the truth is, this is how we all get on our own. When we push people away, either voluntarily or involuntarily, either because your work or because you don't trust people, we get weird. Insecure. Nobody loves me. Nobody really cares. You start telling yourself a lot of stories about, yeah, I'm the only one that's left. I'm the only faithful one. That, like, we get to these kinds of places. And then eventually you get to this point where you feel like, I don't want to trust people. Especially when we're in sin. And the truth of the matter is, all of us are tempted with this. We all want to go solo sometimes. Maybe if you've been a Christian for a really long time, if you've been a disciple for a long time, I know the thing that I tend to see disciples that have been around for a while, they say, man, I've just been hurt a lot. I've tried giving my heart. I've tried investing in my relationships with people. And I feel like everybody just keeps burning me. And so we just decide, you know what, I'm just going to keep things at the surface level. I'll show up to church, maybe even a little bit late, say hi, give my hugs, smile. But that's as deep as my relationships are going to go anymore. And I'm not trying to come at you. I understand that. If you really give your heart to people, it's going to hurt sometimes. The person that I love the most in my life is my wife, and she hurts me all the time. And vice versa. Real relationships hurt sometimes. But when you choose that as an excuse to stop giving your heart to people, you're in for a world of hurt. Or maybe you're a young Christian, and you're just not really used to the idea of getting discipling and getting help. You're not used to initiating with somebody and saying, hey, talk to me about my marriage. Talk to me about my parenting. Ask me about how my walk with God and my finances are going. That's real. This doesn't come naturally. I don't know any human being that just voluntarily, let me tell you all the deep stuff of my life, plus all the sin that I've been in for the last 20 years. Nobody does that. It takes practice. It takes exercise. Or maybe you're visiting, and this is the first time you're ever hearing of this concept. That God really does want us to really be in each other's lives in a very deep, real, emotional way. Either way, you're still flying solo. But God has a prescription. Back to 1 Kings 19. We're going to pick up in verse 15. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint King Hazael, king over Aram, also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. 
Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. We'll stop there. I love this passage. I love in these moments, you know, there are times when God just goes toe-to-toe with people, like with Job, where he's just like, brace yourself like a man. You don't know what you're talking about. But with Elijah here, he recognizes, look, dude is struggling. So he says, okay, I'm not going to rebuke you. He says, I want you to get up. I want to remind you of the truth, that you're not alone. I've got a hundred people that have not bowed down to the prophet of Baal. You're not in this fight alone, no matter what you think you feel. And then he says, now I want you to go, because I got somebody that I want you to meet. I got a friend, I got a relationship in store for you that's going to be a game changer for you. God says, basically, this guy needs a buddy. He's not doing good alone. He needs to stop being alone and start getting around some faithful people. You know, this reminds me, when I, when I, when I read this, you'll see this more. This reminds me of the story of Ruth and Naomi. Because Naomi was in a tough spot. Life had gotten hard. Her husband, her kids had died. And she was not in a good place. But luckily, she had Ruth in her life sticking by her. And in that moment, there's this, there's this really funny moment where you think about, man, this would be fun to hang out with this person. She goes, stop calling me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. That tells you where she was at in life. But luckily, she had Ruth to help pull her out of her funk. That's what God saw in Elijah and said, I got somebody for you. Point number two, being a bridge burner. 1 Kings 19, verse 19. Elijah meets Elisha. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. This is a pretty powerful passage. I love this story. So basically, Elijah gets up. He does what God tells him to do. He goes and finds Elisha. And this guy's a pretty amazing guy. He was wealthy. So he had servants. He had oxen. This guy was doing, was, was doing life in a real way. He, he had a lot going for him. And not only was he wealthy, the guy had good character. It said that he was driving the 12th pair of oxen. He didn't just have servants doing the job. He was doing the job himself. Elijah comes up to him, doesn't even talk to him. This, again, he was in a, he was in a bad way right now. Says he takes off his cloak, throws it over Elisha's shoulders, and then walks away. Doesn't even really do it. He does like the minimum requirement that God asked him to do. Like, go call this guy. Fine. I'm out. But what I love about this is Elisha's heart. As soon as that happens, he gets the significance of this. He's like, wait, 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 wait. I want to come with you. Just give me a minute. I'm going to go say goodbye to my family, and I'm coming with you. And then you've got to love Elijah's response to that. 
No, go away. What have I done to you? I don't even know what he means by that. Like, like stop it. Just leave me alone. That's where he's still at. God will not let this dude fly solo. I love it. But let's break this relationship down a little bit, because this is amazing to me. I want us to understand this. There's some powerful contrast here, okay? If we're going to look at this situation, this story, and these two men, I want to compare them side by side to understand the significance of what's going on here, okay? Elijah was the Lord's prophet, designated by God to call, to call people to the truth. Elisha was a rich farmer. He's a landowner. That's really all we know about him. He just... He was making the most of his life, making money, doing things the way he ought to do. Elijah was told by God in this situation, I want you to choose this man to succeed you as prophet. Elisha had zero expectations that anything in his life was going to change. He was just plowing his field, making his money, enjoying life. Elijah had nothing to lose in this situation. Zero. Elisha had everything to lose. Being called to be the Lord's prophet meant everything about his life could be changing. But the difference in the attitude was, Elijah had a terrible attitude, didn't really want to do what God was calling him to do, and Elisha was, I'm ready to come with you. Let's chew on this for a second. Nothing about this relationship and following this man made sense for Elisha. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. He was risking giving up all that he owned, his whole life and his future that he had laid out for him, to follow a grumpy, crotchety Lord's prophet who didn't even want him around. But Elisha said, you know what? I'm coming with you. Matter of fact, I'm so sold out that I'm coming with you. I'm going to take every bit of plowing equipment that I have. I'm going to have a bonfire. I'm killing all of my oxen. I'm going to have a barbecue for my workers. And I'm dipping out because I'm all in with you. Anybody else feel humbled? It's because Elisha figured something out that Paul was trying to help the church in Ephesus to see in the New Testament. Look at this scripture. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to each other. Give your heart your life. Submit. Be on your knees in submission to each other. Why? Because you revere Jesus. It wasn't about Elijah. It wasn't about how spiritual he was or wasn't being in that moment. It was about submitting himself to God. Me being willing to learn from someone, to be led by someone, To let someone help me, to give my heart to someone, whatever it may be, has nothing to do with the person that God has put in my life and everything to do with whether or not I submit to and trust Jesus. 
My heart to give to you is about me trusting that God put you in my life for a reason. But the truth is, I want to make it about them. I want to make it about you. They aren't spiritual enough. They aren't mature enough. They haven't been in my stage of life or they don't know my job situation. I haven't known them long enough. So they can't help me. Any of these sounding familiar? I have wrestled with this for so long in my life and my walk with God. You know, when I first moved out to California, or back out to California, uh, I was in college. And Steve Lounsbury was supposed to be my discipler. And I was at a place in my life where, again, I had my whole high school experience and everything from that. Uh, I had had some, some guys in my life that really weren't, weren't stellar, spiritual hero type guys. And I didn't really know how to give my heart all that much. And frankly, I just didn't want to. I kind of had this thing about me that like, I kind of wanted people to earn my respect and earn my heart. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Well, when I moved back, uh, still pretty early on in my relationship with Steve, he came over to, to hang out with my brother. And they were outside on the back patio, and I happened to be inside playing video games, which I like to do from time to time. And I, and I was playing this boxing game uh, that I, and I've learned since then. Boxing, one-on-one -on -one fighting games, they just, they just aren't good for me. I get way too emotionally invested sometimes in really stupid things. So I'm playing this game, and I start just getting livid. And I'm, like, shouting at the television over this dumb video game, not knowing all the while that the back door is cracked about that much. And Steve can hear everything that I'm saying to the television. And so I'm, like, raging out, like, trying not to break my video game. And all of a sudden I hear the door open, and Steve goes, Jake, what are you doing? He looks at me, sees me fuming, looks at the TV, and goes, are you mad at a video game? And all of a sudden, I'm like, <sighs> you know how somebody catches you in the moment when you're angry and it, like, pushes you to 11? That's where I was at in my head. And he looks at me, and he just starts laughing, which is the best thing you could do to somebody that's angry. He goes, you're yelling at a video game. And I didn't know how to handle it in that moment. I was so mad and so embarrassed, I ran out of the house as fast as I could. I ran out of the front door, cut the corner, hid behind the side of the house, ducked behind the side of the house, and I'm trying to pray in anger, like, God, I know he's coming. I know he's coming. He's going to come find me where I'm at. Please help me to calm down so I don't hit him. Like, that's, all, that's all I could think in the moment. He comes out and starts yelling, Jake, Jake, and I'm like, no, shh. And then he turns the corner and he sees me and he just starts laughing again. And he comes over to me. We start talking. and Okay, that was pretty much the end of the story. He calmed me down, challenged me about yelling at a video game. It was a stupid story that he will not ever let me live down. He always wants to remind me periodically, hey, remember the video game? Like, just to, just to kind of rub a little salt in the wound. But 
part of what that moment did for me was it helped me to realize I need a lot more help than I think I need. That moment was an incredibly humbling moment for me because at that moment, I kind of thought I had most of my life, my relationship with God figured out. In that one ridiculous, embarrassing moment, it all came crashing down and I realized, you're an idiot. And you really need this guy to help you. When I finally started submitting myself to Steve, and it was a conscious decision. I don't remember when exactly it was. I don't remember. It wasn't like this aha-inspired moment. But when I finally started submitting my heart to Steve, my life started to change. Even after years of being a Christian, figuring out some good things on my own, my life started to change. My purity started to change. My dating relationship changed. Sharing my faith changed. I realized Steve's a lot better at this than I am. The way I ran a ministry, the way I thought about ministry changed. The way I led people changed. The way I, the way I, I needed to view myself and my relationship with God started to change because of my relationship with Steve. And it wasn't we've had this incredibly sage advice to things. He's got a lot of great wisdom, but also Steve Lonsbury is known for saying some pretty buckwild things in D times. He told a guy to punch himself in the face as hard as he can one time. And I love that advice. I've shared that with people from time to time. But I, I owe so much of who I am today because of my relationship with Steve. But I had to learn to submit. And this isn't just about mentoring relationships and somebody who's older than you physically or spiritually. You know, one of the things I appreciate about our relationship with the Vollmers, we've only been here for about five months. And honestly, I'll just tell you, I was kind of intimidated about being in a discipling relationship with the Vollmers. Their kids are my age. You know, um, Kelly's been, Kelly was in the ministry for a really long time. They're great disciples. I really respect them a ton. And the idea of being in a discipling relationship, I was like, man, well, I, don't even know, I don't even know how we could even help anything in their life. What I love about them and their heart is they're some of the most humble people I have ever met. They have not let our age distract from getting advice, from asking our thoughts on things, from telling us about things that they're struggling with, from letting us help them. They're heroes to me because of that. Because why should age matter? Why should somebody's stage of life matter? Does it? If we're really going to learn from men and women in our lives, we have to get over ourselves a little bit. Elisha was willing to burn all of his bridges to go all in for this relationship. With a dude that did not want him around. I want you to think about for yourself. Whether you've been a disciple for years, if you're not a Christian yet, it doesn't matter. What are the bridges that you need to burn? If you're going to give your heart to people. Past hurts. Fear. Your priorities and not making relationships a priority. There's something in there. If your relationships aren't there, if you've not submitted, that means there's a bridge that you've got to burn. And I'm not going to tell you what it is. You've got to figure it out. But I want to look at the end of their relationship. Turn over to 2 Kings chapter 2. A couple pages over. You still with me?
So Elijah is getting ready to go up to heaven. His time is winding down. It's a pretty emotional time for Elisha. He's got all these people saying, hey, you know, this is his last day. He's like, hey, just shut up. Stop talking about it. You know, I really like him. I don't really want him to go. But there's this really powerful moment in verse 9 where Elijah and Elisha kind of have their last little heart-to-heart together. It says, when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me what I can do for you before I'm taken from you. Elisha responded, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. You've asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet, if you see me when I'm taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will not. So at the end of their relationship, after years of being together, watching how Elijah spoke the truth, watching how he interacted with people, Elisha said, you know what? If I could ask for one thing, it's that I want to be exactly like him. I want to be just like this crotchety old man that did not want me around. Matter of fact, if I could have double of what he is, and this isn't an arrogance thing, this wasn't like a level up now kind of moment. No, this is like, if I could be like him in any way, that's what I would want. Because at the end of the time there, he knew exactly why God had put Elijah in his life. When I look back on my discipling relationships over the years, I've learned so many things from the people that have been in my life. I don't have time to tell you. I used to have this slide that I put up of different men that have discipled me over the years and the things specifically that I've learned from them. You know, from Steve Lounsbury, from my father, from John Mannell, from John Sherwood, from John Hoyt. I could go down the line of the men that God has put in my life over the years, and I could tell you exactly what I've learned from them. And I don't think it was just because they were so awesome, which they are. But I think it's because once you learn to submit to the people that God has in my life, that really it has nothing to do with you, everything about me submitting to you is recognizing that Christ is over this. He's in this whole thing. And if I trust him, I'm going to trust you whether or not you're spiritual or not. I can choose to do things on my own. I cannot give my heart, or I can let God use the people that he has put in my life to lead me closer to Jesus. Paul told the church in Corinth, very bold statement that he made to them one time. He said, look, I want you to imitate me as I imitate Christ. That is a statement I believe that all of us in our relationships need to recognize. I am here to imitate the parts of you that represent Jesus. I'm here to learn from you. I'm here to let the Holy Spirit speak through you. I am here to let you lead me a little bit closer to Jesus than I would be without you. We're going to take communion in a moment here. I want to look at one more scripture together before we do. 1 John 4. Starting in verse 9. It says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, 
but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This chapter is one of the most encouraging and challenging passages to me. Because what, he, what John is trying to remind us of in the middle of all this is that the only reason that we're here is not because we're so spiritual and we figured it out. We are here because God loved you in spite of you, sent Jesus to die for you, to give you the chance of having new life. But because we've been given that new life, our relationships with each other matter. Matter of fact, you see, later on he says, how can you love God who you can't see if you haven't learned to love your brother who you can see? Our discipling relationships are some of the most important, life-giving things that God gives us. I didn't want this to be a practical time because I just wanted to remind you to try to get into your heart a little bit that this is a blessing from God that we get to be in each other's lives like this. That I have people that care about my marriage. That I have people that care how I parent my kids. That I have people that care about my kids. That's a blessing. And I don't want to try to pretend that I can do this on my own. The whole overarching thing here is that we are here. We have these relationships because we've been loved by God. And Jesus was willing to pay the sacrifice for us. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer and we're going to take communion together. Father, I just really want to thank you so much uh, for loving us in spite of us, God. That you have, you have given us so much more grace than we could ever even begin to understand. And you loved us, and you loved us in spite of our worst moments. God, that even in this moment, looking back on the story with Elijah and Elisha, that even in that moment when, when Elisha could have just left Elijah to his own mess, God, I believe you showed the grace that Jesus shows to us. Uh, through that relationship. Father, I pray right now that as we, as we focus on these elements, as we think about Jesus on the cross, God, that, we, that we're reminded of what you've done for us and that we're reminded of that through the people that you've put in our lives. God, we love you so much. And it's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.